You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. As we near the one-year mark of the coronavirus outbreak, all eyes are looking towards one thing, a vaccine. Researchers are scrambling at record speed to cram years' worth of research into just a few months to find that solution. And when they do, it'll be sought after around the world. So how do you ethically decide who gets the vaccine first, how to fairly distribute the vaccine, and who's responsible for possible problems stemming from a rush process? We're talking with Govind Prasad. He's an assistant professor at the Sturm College of Law who focuses on bioethics and health law. He's been working with a team of researchers on the ethics of distributing medical supplies for the coronavirus and the ethical framework for global vaccine allocation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. The Guardian says that the development of the COVID-19 vaccine is moving incredibly fast, faster than any vaccine that's ever been developed before. This is a vaccine that's going to be needed around the world. So how do you accomplish something like that? And is it even realistic to accomplish something like that this fast? So I think one of the things that's been a sort of bright spot, um, although we don't know um, how bright it will turn out to be so far in terms of COVID-19 response, um, is the extent to which you've seen um, global collaboration and sort of scientific innovation um, by scientists around um, trying to work quickly to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. You're absolutely right. This is a much quicker timeline than you typically see for vaccine development. You see um, sometimes in the decades or more, uh, there are many conditions that are uh, really serious um, that we don't have vaccines for uh, conditions like malaria, obviously, HIV. I think there's good reason. Um, my expertise is in law and ethics, not in science. I think there's good reason to be optimistic um, that we'll have a vaccine on a much shorter timeline than that. But it's definitely not something that is typical. That reflects, I think, in large part, how much harm has been caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and how much concern um, folks have, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And then once the vaccine does come out, how do you go about deciding who gets it first, what order people get it in, things like that? So these questions are really complex questions that a lot of both bodies within um, countries like the U.S., uh, Japan, the U.K., and so on, and then also worldwide are thinking about. So I think the uh, place to start for me, just because it's what I've been thinking about most recently, is to think about this question of how you would allocate the vaccine among different countries. And I think that there are a bunch of different approaches that one might take to doing that. I think one question is going to be the kind of default, which I think would be ethically not optimal, would be something like, well, countries just get vaccines uh, according to how much they can pay for them. We've seen that be the way that some other sorts of treatments for COVID-19 have been distributed. You saw reports uh, within countries, say within the U.S. at least, where different states were bidding against each other for uh, protective equipment, for ventilators, things like that. I think that there's interest in having um, some approach to allocating vaccines globally that aims more at equity and fairness than the sort of uh, disorganized response that we've seen earlier on. And so some of the uh, major companies that are developing vaccines, for instance, have said that they're committed to fair and equitable distribution and that they're interested in not just trying to make maximum profit, 
but they're interested in uh, trying to distribute the vaccine that they're making through inequitably. I know some of the companies uh, have said they'll develop the vaccine where they're just trying to get back production costs. Obviously, the question of how allocation ends up uh, going forward is going to depend to some extent on uh, which vaccines end up being effective. So is it a vaccine that is developed by a company that's pledged this interest in fairness and equity? Is it a different company that has more of a profit-making interest? Um, is it a national government that may have its own priorities for how it would distribute vaccines? More than 170 countries have agreed to participate in the World Health Organization's effort to develop and equally distribute a vaccine globally. Notably not on that list is the United States. What does an equitable global vaccine distribution look like and what are the potential problems we could see? Yeah, so I think there's a pretty um, wide agreement among folks in public health that it is a problem to not have major countries participating in a um, global effort. And in part, it's because if you don't have countries participating, you run the risk of, again, having this sort of disorganized response. In some of my uh, more recent work, I've uh, worked with some others from different countries, people who work in ethics and public health from the U.S., Australia, Canada, a variety of other places, Singapore, Ethiopia, to think about this question about um, how what equitable distribution of a vaccine globally would look like. And so what we argue in that paper, which came out in the journal Science, is that in thinking about how to define fairness and equity, so you have some uh, companies, for instance, talking about fairness and equity, but not defining it, we would want to focus on three values, which we describe as first, uh, trying to benefit people and limit harm. So trying to ensure that uh, the vaccine is distributed in ways that have benefits for people in terms of preventing both the direct and the indirect harms that are being caused by the pandemic. These would include things like obviously death, long-term illnesses, poverty, unemployment, uh, kids not being able to go to school. And the second uh, principle that we talk about is prioritizing the disadvantaged. So we think that there's a special reason to be concerned about uh, countries, for instance, that were all, all already disadvantaged and people within those countries that are uh, disadvantaged, although our focus is on allocation among countries. Uh, we're not trying to prescribe allocation within countries to which specific people in the country get it. The last uh, thing that we say is that it's also important that allocations show um, what we call equal moral concern. Um, which is not to differentiate among countries, except insofar as either treating countries differently would prevent harm and benefit people, or would serve to prioritize um, disadvantage. So it's, uh, those are the two purposes we're aiming at. So if you have 170 countries on, in a global agreement on one page, and the U.S. is not a part of that, where does that kind of put the United States in this equation? So again, I think a lot of that is going to depend on who, um, which company or country comes up with an effective COVID-19 vaccine first, whether you have more than one vaccine over time that's effective, and whether the effective vaccine is one that um, you're able to scale up production quickly. That is, even once you find a vaccine that's effective and safe, it will still take a long time to really scale that production up. There are all sorts of production bottlenecks and barriers um, ranging from the process of producing the vaccine doses itself to the process of actually um, finding glass vials is a big challenge. Just the sort of technical steps of getting that vaccine uh, packaged in a um, sterile way, then the supply chain of getting it out to where it needs to be administered, and then last, 
having personnel and especially thinking about that globally to administer it. And coming back to your question, you know, with the U.S., if it turned out that the U.S. had rights either probably by having done what's called an advanced purchase agreement where they've had the vaccine um, company uh, promise to give them a certain number of doses in exchange for some money, then that could be a situation where vaccines might go to people in the U.S. earlier. On the other hand, if the vaccine is developed that's successful first um, in some other country or in a place where there's not an advanced purchase agreement, that could end up being bad for the U.S. And so by not having the U.S. be part of the uh, sort of larger initiative, it's not that the WHO effort means that you uh, can't pursue your own efforts to develop vaccines as well. But if you're not participating, you're sort of putting all your eggs in one or a few baskets. And so it could end up being not only, I think, ethically troubling, but just sort of unwise for the U.S. to be entirely outside of that global effort. Because if the vaccine that ends up working is not one where the U.S. has been part of an advanced purchase agreement, then they'll be scrambling to sort of get that access. And on the other hand, do you see any concerns with this WHO agreement? I think it makes sense to have a global effort to develop and distribute a vaccine fairly. Um, But in our science paper, we raised some concerns about a couple of different aspects of different allocation proposals that the WHO has made. The first thing the WHO and sort of one document proposes is they say uh, distributing equitably among countries means just distributing in accord with the population of the country. So you give um, X many vaccines as kind of a ratio to a country that has population Y. And we think that's a mistake because in general, when you're trying to allocate scarce resources in response to a disease or a pandemic, you're not just thinking about number of people, you're thinking about how bad the pandemic is there, what other resources they have for dealing with it, and what the sort of um, vulnerabilities are of the population. When we looked in the U.S. again at where scarce resources were sent or should have been sent, you would want to respond to sort of places that were hotspots, areas where there were a lot of people that had vulnerabilities. When you think about globally allocation response to other diseases, we wouldn't say, for instance, when you're trying to figure out where to direct medications for malaria or antiretrovirals for HIV, to just do it in proportion to population, you would look at which countries were suffering really serious burdens of disease. And there were other parts that you guys disagreed with too as well? Yeah, so there's a different proposal, which um, the WHO has talked about in some other documents where they say, well, you should do it in proportion to the number of health workers and people over 65. And I think at least that tries to respond to trying to benefit people and um, reduce harm because vaccinating health workers could help to reduce spread. And you are seeing um, higher rates of death with age. But the problem with that approach is that we think, again, that may be really disadvantaging to countries that are already disadvantaged because those countries tend to have fewer healthcare workers per capita. And if you look at the age distribution of who's dying of COVID-19 there, it's not, doesn't tend to be skewed as much toward folks who are over 65 as it is in, say, developed countries like in places like uh, Norway or the UK or even the US. Even in the US, you see a sort of mini version of what I'm going to describe, which is that in countries that are poorer, you see many more people under 65 dying of COVID-19 as a proportion of the population. And so the concern about saying you set the cutoff at 65 is that, again, is something that may advantage um, countries that are better off and may ignore the way in which the burden of disease doesn't look the same in, say, a country like India as it looks in a country like, again, 
um, Norway or the UK. Let's talk about the ethics of releasing a vaccine so quickly. So we've seen in the headlines, Russia has fast-tracked a vaccine and skipped large trials, which you would normally do. In the United States, we have political pressure, Trump saying that we're going to see a vaccine, quote, momentarily. What's your take on the ethics of responding to the pressure to get a vaccine out so quickly? There are a couple of big concerns. I feel like the biggest concern for me, and actually one I think people talk less about, is a concern about if you have a vaccine that is not all that effective. Not even that it's unsafe, but it's just not that effective. And people start abandoning other social distancing measures because they're eager, understandably, to try to get back to um, pre-pandemic life. Um, you can actually end up having uh, really bad outcomes from that. So I think uh, there's a lot of possibility that I think even the best case scenario for a COVID-19 vaccine may not be something like the measles vaccine where you have a sort of early in life, you get that, you have long-term, very high rates of immunity. It may end up looking more like the flu vaccine where in a given year, it reduces your chance of getting the flu, but it doesn't mean if you got it, you for sure won't get the flu. And so there's this danger that if you have a vaccine that is not all that effective and people take that, um, it may make it harder to get people to take a more effective vaccine later on. It could lead to people abandoning other measures and spread uh, being really expensive, extensive, especially if say you have a vaccine where the um, efficacy differs a lot across the population. So if you had a vaccine that was say um, somewhat effective in younger folks, was less effective in older folks, um, younger people stopped social distancing once they were vaccinated um, and uh, then they started gathering if the vaccine had, say, lower efficacy, again, in some vulnerable populations, you could end up with really bad outcomes from that. So a big concern I would have about going too quickly is that you want to be concerned not only about safety, but about efficacy. The other thing that I think people obviously worry about that's sort of the more obvious danger is if something gets approved quickly and it's not safe, or people are directly harmed by the vaccine. And what could be some of the legal ramifications if a vaccine is released with skipping maybe certain safety steps that you would typically take and it is a problem for the safety of people? I think legally that's more complicated because it would depend on whether, I think if you had a vaccine that was unsafe, if the vaccine was something that was being approved in the way that sort of ordinary vaccines have been approved, um, then it would go through the standard vaccine compensation process, the same as if somebody were somehow injured by something like a flu vaccine. If you had people using vaccines off-label, if you had something that was not a standard approval process, then you might end up with different legal issues because the vaccine might not be governed by the standard process for claims and for compensation. And I think this one concern that I would have about um, sort of fast approval is that if people feel concerned about harm or if somebody is harmed, uh, that could lead to sort of upticks in hesitancy, not only about this vaccine, but about others. It could contribute to a sense of distrust or a sense that the process is being politicized. And so again, I think it makes a lot of sense to be ensure that the um, approval process is something that is not trying to cut corners that is based on um, scientific evidence. And going along with that, from a legal perspective, could there be a COVID-19 vaccine mandate? Sure, yes. Yeah. So that's actually something that I've been thinking about um, recently because we've been doing, in some other work I'm doing, some empirical research looking at people's attitudes about a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. And I guess the big question legally is, 
you know, whether it's legal is going to depend on uh, for whom it's being mandated and who's the actor that's doing the mandating. So the first thing to say is I think it would be uh, difficult or it's just not clear that there would be federal authority to have some sort of federal government level mandate. Typically vaccines are something for other diseases as well that's handled at the um, state level rather than federal. So each state is going to have its own rules. All states have some mandates for childhood vaccines um, to go to school, and those are legally fine. There's no legal reason uh, why you can't have those. I think the determination that just needs to be made is whether they are necessary for addressing a public health problem. Uh, similarly, you could have an adult mandate. States generally haven't had those because typically they've been able to deal with the public health problems by having a childhood vaccine mandate. So under a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, Supreme Court has said, um, if it's necessary to deal with the public health problem, you could have an adult vaccine mandate, but typically there have not been population-wide um, adult vaccine mandates. Uh, what you've seen instead is um, you've seen some more targeted mandates um, for employers um, to employees. So for instance, if people are gonna work in hospitals, they may be mandated to get a flu vaccine or Tdap for whooping cough or other vaccines as part of doing their work as hospital healthcare professionals. Uh, similar mandates have been proposed for folks who are, say, working in schools as opposed to being uh, kids in schools. So I think one way that you might see it developing is that you might see sort of based on that model and some employers, especially in high-risk industries, healthcare would be a natural place to look first. I'm thinking about having that kind of mandate if you had an approved vaccine. A Bloomberg Law article reports that bioethicists say thousands of Americans who volunteer for COVID-19 vaccine trials only to get a placebo should jump toward the front of the line when a shot is available. What's your take on that? I think it's something that initially sounds very tempting. I have some sympathy with it, but also some concern. My sort of first concern is how you can limit it to just saying the people who got placebos in vaccine trials. The first question is sort of which vaccine trial? Is it only the people who got the placebos in the trial that led to a successful vaccine as opposed to the trials, people who got placebos or got unsuccessful vaccines in other trials that also contributed to our scientific understanding? but weren't the trial that led to a successful vaccine. I think it's not clear to me why they should be treated differently. Taking that sort of a step back further, you have people who have participated in other kinds of research for COVID-19 treatments, uh, research on things like remdesivir, uh, research on um, antibodies, things like that. Should they get priority for a vaccine as well? What's the sort of dividing line there? I think it's important to treat people fairly in research, and it's important to have research studies designed in ways that can effectively recruit participants. The other thing that I would say is that if you give those people priority, it seems not completely clear to me that you'd want it to be, or that even they would want it to be, that they themselves would get priority. So I think the example I gave in, to Bloomberg, I don't know if they printed it, was, um, so say that I, um, I actually did sign up, although I wasn't selected for trials, um, if I had gotten the placebo and then later there was a vaccine trial, I wouldn't want probably to be the person who actually got vaccinated first. I would rather have the vaccine given to friends and family who are immune compromised or who are older. Like I want my 
mom and dad to be able to see my kids, that would be much more effectively realized by giving them priority than giving me priority. So I think if you gave vaccine trial participants priority, it might be better for everybody to give them a sort of transferable priority. And looking at a high level of the coronavirus outbreak, why is it so important to ensure that leaders are having these conversations about ethical guidelines and that they're putting them in place and that they're actually following them? For a couple of reasons. I think one big reason, again, and I think we've sort of seen this in um, some of the other aspects of the response is, again, sort of going back to the idea of um, preventing harm and benefiting people, we saw a real breakdown with respect to the allocation of a drug called remdesivir, which is one of the few treatments that has some evidence of efficacy for COVID-19. I think it's one of the um, treatments that the president did receive um, after he was diagnosed. And unfortunately, early on when remdesivir was being allocated, the federal government basically, at least my view, sort of messed up the remdesivir allocation. They were sending the drug to places where there weren't very many patients who needed it. It was going to hospitals that maybe didn't have the refrigeration or other capacity to manage it. Meanwhile, there were other places that were hotspots that weren't getting remdesivir that they needed, and hospitals were immensely confused about what was going on. So you were getting unnecessary harm and failure to to benefit people. And I think that led to also public uh, sort of lack of trust, confusion, people feeling dispirited about the pandemic response. I think if you have guidelines developed in advance the way the National Academy of Medicines in the US is trying to do for thinking about prioritizing access for a COVID-19 vaccine, that will be helpful because it will help policymakers think in advance about how you get the supply chain going um, to be able to reach those folks, how you have outreach to be able to um, ensure that people know that they have access or informed about what the vaccine um, rollout plan would look like. By having a sort of recognized process, you reduce the risk that you have, again, something that could cause unnecessary harm and lack of public trust, which is sort of arbitrariness where people who are more advantaged, better off, richer celebrities end up um, getting access first. Having a fair and understood process both would uh, benefit people and prevent harm. Um, it would serve to um, ensure access for disadvantaged populations, and it would um, avoid showing kind of arbitrary or unequal concern, avoid showing, um, showing favoritism. To read more about Govind Prasad's latest research, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.